Well, do you ever find yourself in a circumstance where you wonder if God really cares? Do you ever find yourself in the midst of a, a circumstance or a, or a hardship or a trial in your life? You've spent time in prayer, you've spent time in the Word, and you're still wondering, does God really care? Perhaps you've spent time seeking after him and you're not sure, is he even listening? Can you relate to this at all? Currently at West Highland, we're going through a series right now called Encountering Jesus. And for the past number of weeks, Pastor Duane has gone through several different encounters where Jesus has encountered someone, a person, who encountered him and got to experience a different side of who Jesus is. We started off with Jesus encountering Nicodemus, someone who was very religious and thought that he had it all together. But after he encountered Jesus, he wasn't sure and learned he needed to be born again. We also learned about Jesus encountering the woman at the well, someone who knew she wasn't good enough, was confused about what true worship looked like, and Jesus revealed himself to her. We saw the story of Jesus with the Canaanite woman who had greater faith than even the disciples who had been spending time one-on-one in the presence of Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Duane looked at the story of the rich young ruler who it was clear he loved money more than he loved God and he walked away sad. This morning, we're going to look at another story, something a little different, though. We're not going to look at Jesus encountering a person, but Jesus encountering a force of nature. We're going to look at Jesus encountering the storm. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 4. We're going to spend time there in verses 35 to 41. We're going to see how it's easy for us to, to doubt sometimes the goodness of God when we find ourselves in a difficult circumstance. But we're going to see that it's in the midst of these difficult circumstances that we need to have trust and faith in him most. And so we're going to look at what happened in this story, make a few observations as we, as we just run through these verses. Then we're going to look about what specifically are a few things we learn about Jesus and his nature and his character, and then look at how we should respond. So if you have your Bibles, again, open up to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. So let me read that for us. Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up with water. But he was there in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they they were filled with great fear, And said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. 
So this passage starts off in verse 35 by saying, on that day. So what Mark's doing there is he's telling us there's already stuff that's gone on in this story that's already happened on that day. If we look back to the beginning of Mark, verse, Mark chapter 4, we see in verse 1 that it says Jesus was actually teaching a great crowd by the sea. And the crowd was coming up upon him, so he actually had to get into this boat, and he was teaching kind of from the boat to the group of people that were there uh, at the shore. And uh, we, we, we see that he spent a good chunk of the day already in teaching. There's several parables that you, if you look at chapter 4, you'll see that he taught before this encounter on the sea. There's the parable of the sower. There's the story of the lamp under the basket. The parable of a seed growing and the parable of the mustard seed. So Jesus has already spent a long day in teaching the crowd that was there. And he's always probably already quite tired as, as this story in, in verse 35 begins. You know, after teaching a group of people for a while, you actually, you get quite tired. You know, there's a good chance that this afternoon, after preaching at two services, I can be found on the couch with NFL football on the TV, but actually dozing while the NFL football is on. And that's because it's exhausting to be teaching. And so when, we, when Jesus is found here in verse 35, he's already quite tired from a day of teaching. It's interesting that uh, Jesus is the one that says, yeah, we need to go across the sea. We need to kind of to move away from here. But it's the disciples who, uh, in the verse, uh, say to him, they, it's, they took him onto the boat. So it's like, okay, Jesus, you're tired. You're the teacher, but we're the fishermen. We know the seas, so we're going to take you now onto the boat. So they kind of take the lead there. And then, uh, and then it's, it mentions here that there's other little boats that, that went, or other boats that went there with him. So it wasn't just the disciples that crossed the sea. It was Jesus, the disciples, and several others. In verse 37, we see that as they begin to cross the sea, though, something happens. It says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. We know from chapter 5 of Mark that Jesus was headed across the Sea of Galilee toward the region of the Gerasenes. And you can see that on the map there. It wasn't Jesus kind of going straight across the, um, the sea, but that he was, he was cutting off some of, some of the long walk that would have happened in the crossing of the river uh, there that, that he was doing. The Sea of Galilee, it's surrounded by mountains. You can kind of see um, how there's mountains there, just with the, uh, the image there on, on the screen indicating that there's, there's mountains all around there. And so what would happen is that often cold air coming from the Mediterranean would come kind of through these mountains and find themselves at the Sea of Galilee, and the heat there that's above the sea met, and it would often cause storms. So it was known that this sea, it was often quite rough. The Sea of Galilee, it's 21 kilometers long, like up and down, and 12 kilometers wide. And so this must have been a huge storm, though, more than normal. They, if they were going in the boat, they knew that they were probably going to encounter some rough waters. But this is obviously over and above what they would usually be used to encountering. The disciples are probably working hard with their buckets to, to get the water out. And they're, they're, they're frantic, as we will see. In verse 38, they are... So, or in verse 38, we see that they come up to Jesus. They find that he was sleeping in the back of, of, the, of the boat, asleep on a cushion. They said, teacher, 
Do you not even care that we're about to perish or that we're perishing? We see two different reactions to the storm here in verse 38. Very different reactions. The first one is the reaction of Jesus. It says he was asleep on a cushion at the back. I love this. I love that Jesus found a cushion <laughs> to sleep on. You know, sometimes we can, we can think of Jesus as this, like, because he's God, he just, nothing can penetrate, or he's, in, he's impenetrable. He's just, he, if he's sleeping, it's, somehow he's, like, floating on, on, on the back of the ship, like a, like a ghost or something. No, Jesus was a, a man. He was a human just like you and I. When he's tired, and if he's on a boat, he's looking for a cushion on which to sleep. But it's quite amazing that he can sleep during this wild storm that the disciples find themselves in, such as they think they're going to die. I'm not sure if you know anyone in your life or you are like this yourself, but do you know someone who can just sleep through anything? It's like there's just a massive like, storm last night and you, you look over to your spouse. Did you hear that last night? No, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no clue. Slept right through it. You know, I'm, my sleep patterns are kind of inconsistent. I know when I was, when, when, a few years ago, when our kids were young, I would wake up in the morning, but I was like, did you hear Noah last night? Yeah, and he was up like five or six times. I know there's probably some dads out here that can relate, but it's like, no, I didn't hear him at all. <laughs> but the mom heard many times throughout the night the child as- awake. But then there's times where there's major storms, and I and I awake several times throughout the night, and Vanessa sleeps quite right through it. Jesus, though, he sleeps through this storm that's about to cause the death, or that the disciples are feeling like that this is going to cause them their death. He is a deep sleeper. But remember, he, had, he was quite tired from a day full of teaching, and he already spent the day standing on a boat offshore teaching a large group of people. It's interesting that this is the only place in all of the Gospels that mentions that Jesus slept, and it's during the storm. There's obviously a deep sense in Jesus' own humanity that he has a trust in God's providence. He already taught earlier in the day about that farmer who plants a seed and then goes to sleep, and he doesn't know why or how the seed sprouts up, but just trusts in the providence of God that when he does what he's supposed to do, that seed will grow. Jesus seems to have the same just trust in the providence of God that no matter what is coming his way, until he's finished his work, he'll be okay. There was an English missionary named Henry Martin who left England in the 1700s for India. And he said this, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Jesus knew that nothing could could cause him harm until the work that the Father had given him to do was done. Contrast this with the disciples' reaction. They come up to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we're about to die? The wording in the original language for woke him is a much stronger term. This isn't a gentle awakening. They're shaking Jesus. Jesus, do you not know that we're about to die? Don't you care? It's interesting that they call him teacher. There's still a bit of formality in this. There's a, there's a respect, but it could also be 
a bit of sarcasm. Teacher, didn't you see this coming? We're about to perish. Don't you even care? Verse 38 illustrates a stark contrast between the reaction of Jesus sleeping on a cushion at the back and trusting that not even a storm can thwart God's plan and the disciples frantic and questioning the goodness of God and care of Jesus amidst the storm. Verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Notice here that Jesus addresses both the wind and the sea individually. Jesus has power and authority over all. And Mark records that he he speaks both to the wind and to the sea. First, he rebukes the wind. Rebuke here is the same word that that Mark uses in, in chapter 1, verse 25, when Jesus rebukes an evil spirit and calls that spirit to come out of someone. Mark is telling us that just like Jesus has authority over the demonic and the spirits, he also has authority over what we would call the forces of nature. With a word, he can put demons into place, and with a word, he can put winds in their place and cause them to stop. He rebukes the wind and then says to the sea, Peace, be still. Another way that this this phrase could be used is that he says, be muzzled. That's what it kind of, in its original language, means. Be muzzled. He's telling the sea to be muzzled. Well, what do you use a muzzle for? Those of you who have dogs, sometimes they just bark all the time. Bark, bark, bark. And sometimes you have to put a muzzle on them to to teach them, maybe, to stop barking all the time. Even if that dog wants to bark, if it is muzzled, it cannot make a sound. And so this is Jesus speaking to the sea and saying, even if you want to cause havoc, because I speak, you have to be silent. You may not move. The passage goes on to say that the wind ceased after this. The wind ceasing just gives this this image of someone who's been working hard all day. Go, go, go. They get home, and the first thing they do is just collapse onto the couch. You've probably had days like that where you've just been going, 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 and you just get home, whether it's on your bed or on the couch, you just collapse there, and it's almost like you couldn't even move even if you wanted to. That's what happened when Jesus speaks to the wind. And the sea reacts in verse 39. says there was a great calm. Usually when the winds calm down, it still takes a few moments for the sea to stop as well because it's still reacting to what the wind had done moments ago. But in this case, it's both the wind and the sea that simultaneously become completely silent and stop moving as it responds to Jesus. I was reading one commentary this week that put it like this. The winds and the waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of a solemn silence. The winds and the waves synchronize in a sublime symphony of a solemn silence. 
Something comparable to even stillness of a starry heavens settles upon the waters. Suddenly the surface of the sea has become smooth as a mirror. From complete havoc to complete stillness in an instant at the word of Jesus. You could just imagine what the look would have been on the disciples' face. Try to think about it if you were there. In an instant, thinking you are close to dying, to being thrown over into the the sea, being swallowed up, about to drown, and now you're looking around and it's completely silent and completely still because Jesus said, peace, be still. So how does Jesus respond now to the disciples in verse 40? He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice the kindness of our Lord here. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for their harsh comments about him not caring about them. He doesn't bring up sarcastically, hey, remember when you said teacher? Don't you care that we're about to die? That's not the manner of Jesus. Love keeps no record of wrong. Jesus is love. And he doesn't bring up their harsh comments back in their face. Instead, he's concerned with their lack of faith. Note that he says, why are you so afraid? Being afraid in the midst of a deadly storm is a normal human reaction. Jesus isn't concerned that they had fear. He's concerned that their fear overtook them so that they feared the storm more than they trusted in Jesus. Their fear didn't demonstrate that they had actual faith in him. You see, it wasn't inappropriate to be afraid, but their reaction didn't line up with the fact that they should have had faith in Jesus, the one who rules over the seas. Their fear should have been tempered by their faith in Jesus. So after asking, why are you so afraid, he asked them, have you still no faith? Again, notice he uses the word still. Why do you still have no faith? There's an assumption there from Jesus that they should have had faith because of what they've already seen him do, how they've seen him be faithful. The experiences the disciples have had with Jesus are meant to build their faith. This isn't the first time they've seen Jesus do something miraculous. This isn't the first time they've seen that Jesus is willing and able to save them in the midst of their storm. They've seen him many times prove his faithfulness. Why do you still have no faith? You have reason to believe, yet you still doubt. Our experiences of God's faithfulness in the past are supposed to fuel our faith for today and for the future. Think about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. He's constantly going through one storm after another. His brothers plot to kill him. They sell him into slavery. He's then mistreated in in Potiphar's home, gets accused of trying to sleep with Potiphar's wife, ends up being imprisoned. 
And then he's forgotten in jail by the very ones that he had helped get their release. But in and all, he keeps faith that God is using these circumstances for a purpose. Joseph keeps his trust in God, and through it all, in the end, he speaks of his own experience of a stormy life and says that you, my brothers, meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. One of the big themes in this story, just six short verses, is that fear is an enemy of faith. And we need to constantly choose faith over fear in our discipleship to Jesus. We find the disciples, they're there looking at him, jaws dropped because of what they've just seen. And how does this story now end? How does Mark tie up this story? Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid during the storm, but now they're even more afraid after the storm. During the storm, they feared because of their lives potentially being in danger. Now in verse 41, they're not afraid because of the storm. There's no storm anymore. They just see water completely clear and, and, and safe now, but yet they're in the presence of the one who spoke three words, and it went from deadly peril to complete safety and silence. They're fearing because of whose presence they're in. We just sang of a holy God, only a holy God. They are now in that presence. Think back to Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets this amazing vision of being in God's presence. And how does he respond? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah realizes he is in the presence of God, he fears, and he realizes his own fallenness. For the disciples, they have now seen Jesus act. Just like he he spoke at creation, and there was nothingness, and then there was everything. Now he speaks to creation, and it goes from a deadly circumstance to complete safety and calmness. And they, they look at him and say, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's a mix of fear and reverence. They realize that Jesus is far greater than they had previously realized. His power is not only over people, over sickness, over demons, but over the winds and the waves. And interestingly, this with that question is where Mark ends this story. He leaves it here with the question that he does not answer, but leaves for the reader to respond to. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so with this in mind, I think in our, in our, in our final moments together in this passage, we need to ponder who is this Jesus, and what does this story teach us about who he is? And so let me offer you three considerations here that I see right in this story that are important for us today to realize as we interact with Jesus. The first thing, what do we learn about Jesus? Jesus is human, just like you and I. Again, the clearest example we see of this is in verse 38. But they found him in the stern of the ship, 
asleep on a cushion. Again, normally when we're, when we're reading through the Bible, this might have been something we just kind of gloss right over. But Jesus found a cushion. He is human, just like you and I. The one who was with God the Father in all of creation, speaking and things are formed out of nothing, when he's tired, also needs a cushion. This is the lion and the lamb. This is the humanity and the deity of our Savior. He was tired, and so he finds a cushion. This, to me, makes Jesus relatable. He's not, again, just a divine being or a droid that's just moving around without feeling or emotion. No, when Jesus is tired and he's on a boat, he looks for the most comfortable place to rest, just like you and I would. Why is Jesus being fully man important? Well, one, it makes him relatable. Again, Jesus experienced many of the same struggles, many of the same emotions, many of the same challenges that you and I face. Whatever you are going through right now in your season of life, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus then has the ability to be compassionate and empathetic toward you in what you're going through. He can empathize with you in your suffering. He can empathize with you in your pain. But he can also rejoice with you in your joys. He can do all of these things because he experienced the same emotions that you and I experience. Hebrews 4, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So have you lost a loved one recently and been grieving over the loss of someone close to you? A family member? A friend? Jesus knows what it's like to lose someone that he loves. We read about this when he lost his friend Lazarus, who even though Jesus knew he was going to raise him back to life, he stopped for a moment and wept because of the grief of losing someone that you care about. Jesus can empathize with you in what you're going through. He's human, just like you and I. And it's important that he was fully human because then in our salvation, he can represent us as, our, as a representative head. Just like it says in Adam, all die because of Adam's sin, all those who are in Christ, because he's our representative head, can be saved through Christ because he was human, because he took on flesh. Jesus is fully human, just like you and I. But this also teaches us about Jesus, not only that he's just fully human, but that unlike you and I, he is fully God. In verse 39, when he wakes up and just speaks a word and rebukes the wind and calms the sea, this could only have been done by God. We already have had read for us Psalm 65, where David's writing about the awesome deeds of God. And he mentions the God who stills the roaring of the seas. The only one who could calm a stormy sea has to be the ruler over it, has to be the creator of it. In Colossians 1, when Paul's writing about Jesus, he says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created, including that water that he calmed that day. 
All things were created through him and for him. So because that water was created to glorify Christ, just like you and I are, he can speak to it and it does whatever he says. In Christ, all things hold together. The very particles in that water respond to Jesus because they hold together for him, because they were created by him and through him and for him. And Jesus isn't like some wizard who conjures up some magic power and calls on some other god, you know, in the name of Poseidon, stop. No, he doesn't have to conjure up the power of Poseidon or of Zeus or any other so-called god. It's because he is God. He speaks his words and they respond. In Genesis 1, God speaks and things come into existence and they're ordered for his very purpose. And in Mark 4, he speaks to creation and it becomes ordered for his very purpose once again. And so in Mark 4, we encounter, as Jesus encounters the storm, it shows us what Christians have believed since the beginning, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And then the last thing I'll highlight about Jesus from this passage is that difficult circumstances are not an indication that Jesus doesn't care. What are you going through today? The difficult circumstances you find yourself in, whether they are massive or whether they're even just like slight ones, Jesus cares for you in the midst of whatever you are going through. Again, the disciples, they assumed that because they were in a storm, Jesus didn't care about them. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What we learn about, here about Jesus is that Jesus cares more about building our faith in him than he cares about providing a comfortable life for you. He cares more about building your faith and your trust and your relationship with him than he does providing comfort for you. If you have a view of God that says, if God cares for me, then my life should be without storms, you are following a God of your own imagination, not the God as revealed in Scripture. God has not promised that there will be no storms in your life. But he has promised that he will be with you in all of the storms of your life. Some of his last words here on earth, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So what does this mean for us? It means that we can't control the storms that come to our life. And it also means we can't control how Jesus is going to react to the storms of our life. Sometimes he might graciously remove the storm from us. But perhaps more often he is choosing to walk graciously with you through those storms, to build that relationship with you, to build that trust that you need to have in him. And so that he can show you he loves you while he's walking right with you through it. He loves you. Jesus loves you. You are loved. Just like a parent who loves their child but sometimes allows them to go through things. 
so that they can grow through it. But the parent's still watching and caring. That is Jesus watching over you and caring for you through whatever you're going through. The Christian life, it's a life of faith, not a life of personal comfort. The question we have to ask ourselves when we go through one of these storms is, do I trust Jesus? Because how you answer that question changes everything. Do I trust Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you don't need to have all the answers to your whys. You simply need to move forward in faith and trust the one who loves you, knows what you're going through, and has an ultimate plan that is good, even when we don't understand it. If Jesus has shown himself faithful to you in the past, that needs to be fuel in your tank to help you move forward through whatever you're going through in the present and whatever will come to you in the future. This is faith in the future grace of God. He's been faithful in the past to show you grace. He will be faithful again in the future to show you grace when you need it. And so before we close, let me ask you a final question. This is just how the story ends. How do we respond to this question that the disciples ask? Who is this Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, this isn't the only story in all of the Bible that ends with a question and kind of leaves the story kind of un, untied, like not tied together. Can you think of the other story in the Old Testament? There's a whole book of the Bible, Jonah, that ends with a question. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, the book ends with God asking a question to Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, with its 120,000 people. And then the book just ends. The book ends with a question in order to get the reader to answer the rhetorical question, well, yes, God should have pity on that city, and God does have pity on that city. But ending the story with a question is not the only similarity between this story that we've read this morning and the story of Jonah, when you think about it. And I'm indebted to Tim Keller for helping me see this as I've read some of his books. He wrote a book on Jonah. And if you're interested in reading a good book on that, that prophet, read the book by Tim Keller on Jonah. But think about the connections between this story you've read this morning in Mark 4 and the story of Jonah. In both cases, Jonah and Jesus, they're in a boat, number one. Number two, that boat is overtaken by what? A storm. Number three, what did Jesus and Jonah find themselves doing during the storm? Well, they were sleeping. How did the sailors respond? Oh, we're about to die! Then what happens? There's a miraculous intervention from God, and the sea is calmed. Both stories. Both stories, the sailors are more terrified after the storm is calmed than while the storm was, was ongoing. You see, we have very similar stories, the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus here in Mark 4. But there's at least one major difference. In Jonah's story, in order to calm the storm, he's thrown into the sea, almost like as a sacrifice, so that the rest can live. Jonah goes 
into the sea. This doesn't happen in the story of Jesus in Mark 4. Jesus doesn't get thrown into the sea to save the people there, or at least in that story. But it does happen to Jesus later, doesn't it? You see, Jesus himself makes the connection in Matthew chapter 12 between him, himself and Jonah when he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so must I die and be buried for three days and then I will rise. And that's because I'm the true Jonah. I'm the greater Jonah. You see, Jesus makes this connection because he doesn't get thrown into the sea in Mark 4, but he gets thrown into the sea at the end of the gospel when he goes to the cross for those people, for all the people, for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus goes to the cross, encounters that storm of God's wrath in our place. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came out, Jesus was buried for three days, but because he was without sin, the ground could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. He rose victorious. So that our greatest storm, the enmity we have between a holy God and us as sinners, is now calmed because of Jesus standing in our place. He is the true and greater Jonah. Who is it that even the seas and the wind respond to him? It's the one who stood before all creation and spoke them into existence. Was fully God, able to do that, yet came to earth fully human so that he could stand in our place, live that perfect life that we couldn't live. Go to the cross, experience the wrath of a holy God on our behalf, and then get raised three days later, victorious, so that if we place our faith in him, it doesn't mean we're not going to have storms in life, but that he is going to be with us, and that one day, ultimately, all the storms of this world will end, and he'll wipe every tear from our eye. You see, he's faithful to us. Jesus is faithful and true. He holds us fast in all circumstances, and so this morning, with that question, who is this? This is the most important question that you could answer. If you're not a believer yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, then today is a day that you should respond and place your faith in him. And if you are already a believer, then you need to answer the question, do I trust him? Because if you do, he will hold you fast, and he will carry you through whatever storm that you have in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the true and greater Jonah. That you came to this earth as a man to, to live that life we couldn't live and to experience the wrath of God on our behalf, dying and being buried, but then being raised to life so that when we look on you, we can live. Lord, I pray for each person here. Give us faith to believe in that, that no matter what we're going through, Lord, whether this has been an amazing week that we're going through because we've just seen the goodness from your hands or else, or on the other side, if we've been going through a very challenging or difficult week where we're 
we're struggling in our faith to see, Jesus, do you even really care? Lord, provide us with the faith that we need to believe and trust in you in all circumstances. I thank you, God, that you're faithful, that you walk with us through all the storms of life. And then ultimately, this story tells us that you are fully God, fully man, and that we can, by having faith in you, we can have life and live. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us pray that we would have the confidence that God will walk through us or walk with us through whatever we're going through. Hear this from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And it goes on to say, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's live with the faith that these words of God provide for us.